Welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Thanks for tuning in today. We've been bringing you some unique and special episodes recently, apart from our normal show, which examines kind of what's happened on the front lines of the pro-life movement, because there's a little bit less to report on right now during this nationwide shutdown. But we want to give you content and conversations that encourage you to defend life and equip you to do the same. So this is a special episode and conversation between me and my good friend, Pastor John Randall at Calvary Chapel San Juan Capistrano in Orange County, California. California. This is from last year, and we sat down with his people on a wonderful Wednesday evening in one of their services to discuss how Christians can be a persuasive voice for the unborn, the history of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood, the role of the church in defending life, and the grace and forgiveness available in Jesus for those who have obtained an abortion. Hey, if you like this show and you're just starting to listen to it and this is helpful for you, please consider asking a friend to subscribe, share an episode with a friend, and give us a rating and review wherever you listen. That really Really helps us reach more people. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. All right, good to see you guys tonight. God bless you. I'm so glad you're here, and um, it's a blessing to have you here tonight. If you're joining us for the first time, normally. On Wednesday evenings, we go through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We just completed the book of Deuteronomy. We will be starting the book of 1 Samuel next Wednesday night. Encourage you to read ahead. Yeah. It's always good to hear people clap when you announce a book of the Bible. And the Old Testament. Woohoo! No, man, 1 Samuel. Cannot wait. Going to be exciting. But tonight... You know, we have something that we want to consider, and I shared with you about that, the case for life. You know, at the close of 2018, a report came out in the national news that declared the leading cause of death. Sadly, 1.7 million people died last year due to the HIV AIDS virus, but it wasn't the leading cause of death. 8.2 million people, tragically, died from the disease of cancer, and yet cancer was not the leading cause of death. The leading, leading cause of death globally estimated was abortion, taking the lives of an estimated 42 million children. One month ago today, January 20th, was the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. Churches around the United States use that day to celebrate God's gift of life and to commit themselves to protecting human life at every stage. Also, during that week, thousands of people gathered in Washington, D.C. for the 46th annual March for Life rally. This year's theme was, quote, unique from day one. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe that the sanctity of life is something to be protected and remembered every single day. And so to talk more about this, joining me tonight on the platform, I've invited a very special guest, a new friend of mine. His name is Seth Gruber. And to give you a little bit of background about Seth, he's one of our country's youngest thought leaders on the issue of abortion and has been speaking publicly on behalf of unborn children since the age of 19. He's spoken across the United States, educating, equipping pro-life advocates to be a gracious and persuasive voice for the unborn. He's also part of the Life Training Institute as a traveling pro-life apologist and speaker. He's been featured by World Magazine, Christian Research Institute, Christianity Today, National Radio Broadcast. He was also with me on Focus Point on his channel. And I would love for you to give a warm Calvary Chapel welcome to my friend, Seth Gruber. Come on up, Seth. This is Seth. I'm going to have him sit because he's taller than me. So it's like David and Goliath up here. But Seth, as your bio reads, your, your passion to take a stand uh, and to be a voice for the unborn, it started early on in your life. And what was it that motivated you to be such an advocate for the unborn and to serve in the pro-life movement? Yeah, well, is this... Yeah, on. Well, thank you. That probably was one of the warmest welcomes I've ever received. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, so I uh, grew up in a very pro-life family. My mother was actually the director of a pregnancy resource center. 
um, very similar to the one that you have here in San Clemente. And she directed a clinic called Living Alternatives in Azusa, which was right across the street from Azusa Pacific University. It's still there under a different name now. So she was the director of that clinic in the late 1980s. I was born in 1991. So she stepped down from directing that clinic after I was born. I was the firstborn, two younger sisters. We were homeschooled. And so my mom invested more in us. But we remained heavily involved with the local pregnancy care clinic in Whittier, California, where I grew up. And we did the regular walk for life and always raised funds for the clinic. And so obviously Jane Wall is a good friend of mine and uh, it's amazing that you have her here in your church as you well know. And so then I went off to high school and my senior year at Whittier High School, I did my senior project on abortion. And uh, my high school told me I couldn't select that topic. Um, and so as a public high school, I threatened a lawsuit and I was able to do it. So <laughs> Good, it's great. He did mention he was born in 1991. That was the year I graduated. <laughs> I did graduate, guys, just so you know. But Seth, the issue of abortion is highly controversial. Some think that it is only political. However, as you engage with people regularly on the subject, you find that most people don't really know all the facts. Although many people have heard of Roe versus Wade, they are unaware of the details that actually surround that case. Can you give us your perspective and insight and really a clear historical context as it relates to that Supreme Court case of 1973? Yeah, and that's a great question, John. Most of you in this room, I'm going to assume, are um, pretty attitudinally opposed to abortion or passionately pro-life and believe that the unborn child is a valuable human being like you and I. But even for those of us who believe that, very few of us have a proper understanding of exactly how we got Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton, the two cases that legalized abortion in our country in 1973. So in 1970, um, a woman by the name uh, Norma McCorvey, who went under the pseudonym Jane Roe, attempted to uh, obtain an abortion in Texas. And at that time, abortion was only allowed if refraining from getting an abortion was going to threaten your life, if your life would actually be on the line by not getting that abortion. So she wasn't allowed to get an abortion because her life wasn't threatened. And so that case ended up before the Supreme Court. And in 1973, uh, nine men um, decided that abortion was going to be legal through all nine months of pregnancy. And Doe versus Bolton, the companion case to Roe v. Wade, said that abortion was actually restricted in the third trimester unless refraining from getting an abortion in the third trimester threatened the life or health of the mother. Well, how do we define health? Well, Doe versus Bolton says that health will be defined in light of all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age, relevant to the well-being of the patient. All these factors relate to health. So the Supreme Court just defined health so broadly you could drive a Mack truck through it. And because abortion is a money-making business, friends, what physician is going to decline an opportunity to make money off of killing a baby? And then in 1983, the U.S. Senate said that there is no significant legal barriers of any kind whatsoever that exist today um, that would prohibit a woman from getting an abortion during any stage of pregnancy. So Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton said abortion is legal through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all because health can be defined to fit your preferences. Um, clearly, there are state restrictions on abortions that states can pass, which can save some babies. But as of today, no state can outlaw abortion because of Roe versus Wade. Seth, recently we had another member placed upon the bench of the Supreme Court, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Many of us recall his process that he went through to be placed upon the bench and to serve in that capacity. And we watched that unfold. And there were many who, one of the reasons why they were so concerned and, and so adamantly opposed to him taking that position, one, because he was conservative, but there were many who were concerned and fearful that he might be used to help overturn Roe versus Wade. Is that possible that that ruling could be overturned? And then what would that mean for our country and for uh, that procedure as a whole? 
Well, my goal and intention is to see abortion overturned in my lifetime. Um, and I believe that that's something I will see um, or else I wouldn't be waking up every day and doing this. Um, so, um, but in terms of overturning Roe versus Wade, um, the election, the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court um, was a very interesting um, circumstance because he actually has no judicial history ruling on any type of abortion cases. So uh, there was really no reason for us to suspect that he was going to be positive or negative, though he does seem to um, be a strict constitutionalist and textualist. But he had no judicial history ruling on any abortion cases. Um, and he did let down the pro-life movement some uh, at the end of last year when he voted to not hear a case coming out of uh, Missouri, which was uh, saying, or Louisiana, that was saying they wanted to deny taxpayer funding uh, through Medicaid to Planned Parenthood. They didn't want Planned Parenthood to be able to get any of those funds. And so it went before the Supreme Court and Brett Kavanaugh was on the side that voted to not hear the case. Uh, Neil Gorsuch voted to hear the case, which was our president's first nominee to the Supreme Court. So it is possible to overturn versus, Roe versus Wade. Obviously, we live in a constitutional republic. This is possible. This is what the pro-life movement is working towards. If and when that happens, it'll go right back to the states. So there would actually have to be another case, which would be the opposite of Roe v. Wade, which would make abortion illegal in all 50 states, because Roe v. Wade make, made abortion legal in all 50 states. Right. And by the way, maybe some of you don't know, but um, the woman who was instrumentally used in that case, she actually became a believer. She got saved, which I thought was amazing. Um, what was her and never had an abortion. Yeah. And what was her Norma region? McCorvey. Norma McCorvey actually came to faith in Christ, got saved. And, uh, and never had had an abortion. I mean, it's just the irony of all of that and how the Lord works. But, you know, Seth, recently, and many of you were made aware of this fact, we saw it come into the news and all of us were shocked and overwhelmed to see this terrible pro-abortion. But in fact, you and I, when we were interviewed the first time, we were talking about it was in process there in New York, this Reproductive Health Act. It's a bill that abortion activists have been trying to pass for more than a decade in New York. And when the bill was passed, the people were actually, and if you saw the footage, they were applauding. And the, the most tragic thing about it, and, and uh, there's a number of words that come to mind when I think about how, this is, how God's going to judge people for making these kind of decisions. The state's governor, Andrew Cuomo, uh, hailed it as the most aggressive women's rights achievement in the nation. Seth, when you think about this legislation being pushed forward, what does this bill actually mean and what does it allow? Well, the Reproductive Health Act is a euphemism if there ever was one. Uh, the Reproductive Health Act in New York legalized abortion through all nine months of pregnancy in the state of New York, right? Because I mentioned there can be state restrictions, state laws that can prevent abortions from being performed in any given state um, uh, earlier and earlier. But the Reproductive Health Act um, ensured that a woman could obtain an abortion in the city of New York uh, on the day of birth. And what was particularly appalling about the signing of the bill and the whole circumstance surrounding the New York legislators who reigned in this bill was the absolute zeal and excitement behind this new law. Because the reality is there are dozens of states where you can obtain an abortion, kill your baby, uh, through all nine months of pregnancy. This is, this is not uncommon. Many states, you can do this. Uh, what made that particularly unique was the Senate floor standing up and erupting in applause as Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the Reproductive Health Act. And basically, the law did three things. It legalized abortion until the day of birth. It allowed non-doctors to perform abortions. And it removed the word abortion from the penal code entirely. So... You know, if you don't protect a baby that's born alive during a botched abortion, there's no criminal um, activity that can be brought against an abortionist in that case because they've just removed abortion from the penal code entirely. So it's a very radical bill. It's very sad. And what made it all the more sad was the absolute excitement over its legalization. Mm -hmm. You know, in a bold response to the decision of New York and other states to legalize abortion up to the moment of birth, actually focus on the family, is gearing up to blast live ultrasounds on monitors and screens across Times Square. And we pray that God would use that. Yeah. There's no denying that that's a human being when you see those that footage. And so we'll be praying that God would use that. And um, And so also then we saw then in Virginia, they attempted to pass a law legalizing abortion up to the moment of birth. The governor 
and I don't even want to say his name, of the Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, stunned many last month by saying some babies should be allowed to die right after they're born. Quote, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly what would happen. This is Ralph Northam, who is the governor. He told Washington, D.C. radio station, the infant would be delivered, the infant would be kept comfortable, the infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired, and then the discussion would ensue between physicians and mother. Northam's words came shortly after a Democratic bill uh, was blocked in Virginia by the House of Delegates that would have allowed babies, again, to be aborted up to the last second, even while the mother is in delivery. Your comments? This is a very uh, important point that I want to make. It is just as immoral to abort a baby in the first trimester as it is the third trimester. But we as human beings have a really bad tendency historically of subconsciously attributing more value to people that look more like us. So public approval for abortion in our country launches way down when you hit the third trimester. It's about 13% of Americans support legalized abortion of babies in the third trimester, opposed to or contrasted with public support for abortion in the first trimester, upwards of 60-70%. Guess what? It's the same baby. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about that in the case for life, but that's the point I want to make on that is that, is that we have a more visceral, visceral reaction to abortions in the third trimester because, yeah, it looks more like what we think a baby should look like, but every one of us looks exactly how we're supposed to look at that specific stage of development. And so the point to be made to those who support abortion, and this is a point you can graciously make to people, is this. What is the meaningful difference between the baby in the second trimester that you support women aborting and the baby in the third trimester that you don't support women aborting? It's a valid point that you make, an important one. Then in the state of Vermont, uh, there's a push by the Democratic-controlled legislators for completely unrestricted abortion. In fact, the state of Vermont is considering the most radical abortion law in the world. H0057, with 91 co-sponsors, would create an absolute right to an abortion with no limitations, a move that, that would allow abortion of viable babies. I don't know if you came across that, that Vermont is now, each state is now just continuing to push forward in that regard. Well, a lot of states are actually very, a lot of blue states are very afraid that abortion will, that Roe v. Wade will be overturned in the near future. And Governor Cuomo, in his comments defending the Reproductive Health Act in New York, actually said, almost verbatim, he said, I believe that Neil Gorsuch will overturn Roe v. Wade. I believe that Brett Kavanaugh will overturn Roe v. Wade. So this is the New York State governor saying, I believe that our current president's nominations to the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade if they had the chance. And so a lot of very blue states are saying, well, then we need to make sure we pass the most radical abortion laws in American history so that if and when that happens, our state has protected women's rights. Right. You know, by the way, um, our president, President Trump, encouraged pro-life leaders to remain steadfast in the fight to defend the rights of the unborn. The president recently signed a letter to Congress making it clear that he will veto any legislation that weakens existing federal protections of innocent life. He also reinstated and even expanded the Mexico City policy preventing foreign aid from being used to support abortion. In addition, the administration has issued a proposed regulation to ensure that taxpayer dollars from the Title X family planning program are not used to fund abortion. And he was even saying it's, it's an execution of a baby is what our president said, which I praise God. We need to pray for him. He's in a tough spot and having to stand and defend life. If you saw the State of the Union address, I was very thankful for the comments that he made as it relates to defending the unborn. Yeah, our, regardless of your political persuasion, regardless of how you feel about the current administration, we're not here to talk about that. What we are here to say, though, is that uh, facts speak for themselves. President Donald Trump is the most pro-life president in American history. Um, so we're not, I'm not saying he's a moral leader. I'm not saying he's a spiritual leader. I'm just saying he's been the most pro-life president in American history. And that's something to be grateful for. Um, and so uh, during his State of the Union address, he did um, he named names 
Governor Cuomo, Ralph Northam, and others. And uh, and he described exactly the what the horror of abortion entails in the third trimester and said and called for Congress to pass the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act, which makes abortion illegal after the baby can feel pain. Which again, from a pro-life perspective, it is important, but again, that's not that's not why babies are valuable. They're not valuable because they can feel pain. Right, right. Um, but it's a step in the right direction, and it's certainly something we would have never heard from Hillary Clinton. That's right. But again, we're not here to talk politics, right? It's just reality. I mean, it's just reality. If, if you're offended by that tonight, listen, come talk to me afterwards. We'll pray. We're not here to, we're just, it's just reality. You know this, we're just making you aware of it. But another, uh, another uh, something that's very important, and, and I'll tell you something, we're seeing the, this, uh, this aggressive attack and, and trying to shape the minds of our young people. These, that's why we have our high schoolers sitting in tonight. These are things you're hearing on your campus, college students, junior high. I mean, these are things that are really happening right now. And a YouTube channel for kids is facing controversy after posting a video of a pro-choice activist working to convince children that it's okay to have an abortion. The popular organization known as Hi-Ho Kids has more than 2 million followers on YouTube and Hi-Ho published a video online, it was December 28th, entitled Kids Meet Someone Who's Had an Abortion. It's already, it, I mean, it's been seen by hundreds of thousands of people and the woman there started the social media hashtag, hashtag shout your abortion. And she appears in the video talking with children about her abortion experience and sharing her views on the issue. And in the eight minute video, young children squirm as the woman tries to indoctrinate them with her pro-abortion worldview. She compares having an abortion to a bad dentist appointment and a bodily procedure that's, quote, kind of uncomfortable. She also tells one child that she believes that abortion and this is heretical, that abortion is, quote, all part of God's plan. Seth, why are they targeting children with this message of abortion today? If you fundamentally believe that abortion is integral to women's rights, and if respecting women and respecting women's bodily autonomy and freedoms is directly tied up with the ability to get an abortion, then why wouldn't you try to persuade everyone of that opinion? And now we understand that that's deeply immoral, but for those who are willing to dehumanize the unborn child by calling it a blob of tissue, by calling it a potential person, then there's really no links that the pro-choice movement wouldn't go to persuade people that fighting for a woman's right to choose to kill her baby um, is integral to women's rights. Um, and we see a growing movement from our secular universities in our country that frankly are cranking out pro-choice activists through feminist and women's studies programs. Um, almost every feminist and women's studies program on every secular campus in our country uh, includes training on abortion on how to talk about pro-choice on women's rights. Uh, and a sad reality is that Christian institutions and churches usually do little to nothing to train Christians how to be as equally passionate and persuasive in their pro-life beliefs. And at the end of the day, we know that facts are on our side and the science of embryology is very clear who the baby is. And by the way, we just wanna say we are for women's rights because 50% of the babies that are put to death are women. We're for women's rights, do you understand? Just to make that clear. Seth told me that. We, we have, um, we've heard a lot over the years about atrocities of an organization known as Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood has a repeated narrative that abortion represents just 3% of its services. However, Planned Parenthood president, Dr. Leanna Wen, finally acknowledged recently on January 8th that abortion isn't just a service that the organization provides, but it is the core mission. This is her quote. First, our core mission is providing, protecting, and expanding access to abortion and reproductive health care. We will never back down from that fight. It's a fundamental human right, and women's lives are at stake. Seth, what kind of organization is Planned Parenthood, some of their history, some of their background, and are they really concerned, honestly, about women's health? 
So everyone knows who Planned Parenthood is. That's because they are the largest abortion clinic in the United States, though there are plenty of others. So Planned Parenthood performs an estimated one-third of the country's total annual abortions. So one organization kills 300,000 babies a year in America. So that's why they get the most attention, because they are the abortion giant in our country. However, Planned Parenthood was founded by a racist eugenicist uh, by the name of Margaret Sanger. And we have plenty of Margaret Sanger's writings right. and personal letters to friends. And I want to read a couple of quotes from some of her letters and writings. She said, the most serious evil of our time is that of encouraging the bringing into the world of large families. The most immoral practice of the day is breeding too many children. And she said this in 1920 in a piece called Woman and the New Race. She said, the most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. And then in a letter to a man named Dr. Clarence Gamble, written on December 10th, 1939, she said, we do not want word to get out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. So this is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Another wonderful euphemism, planning parenthood. Um, and so today Planned Parenthood performs a third of our country's abortions. And they are still a racist organization. They're not gonna tell you this, but here are the facts. 36% of all abortions are performed on black babies. Despite the fact that blacks in our country only make up 12% of the US population. So abortion is the number one killer of blacks in America today. And Planned Parenthood still has their racist roots tied up in their very nature and their very identity. It's tragic to think of, you know, people talk so much about racism today as it relates to the African-American. And it is, it's just unthinkable to see what's being done and, and how people could support that. You know, I, I was reading, thankfully, there is a little bit of, I want to share something that was positive. Um, I was reading that uh, the number of abortion clinics, you can praise God for this, there needs, they all need to be gone, but the, the number of abortion clinics is down under 700 for the first time ever since uh, Roe v. Wade. The number of care pregnancy centers is the highest it's ever been. You can praise God for that. Slowly, I mean, really slowly starting to change. I mean, we want more to take place, but that's just something that we can praise God for that. Lord, please continue that work. And, um, you know, Planned Parenthood is an institution where women go when they feel like they have no other choice, when they have to choose to pay someone to take the life that they helped to create. And it's unfortunate. And so um, we need to keep praying that God would close those places down. Um, you know, also, this is this problem, and you're probably aware of this, it's, it's global. I mean, it's not just here in the United States. This is global. In fact, in Canada, the president of Canada, the prime minister, I should say, Justin Trudeau, Canada's radically pro-abortion prime minister, he blasted pro-life advocates amid a nationwide outrage that was barring pro-life groups from federal grant program. And he said, quote, an organization that has the explicit purpose of restricting women's rights by removing rights to abortion, the right for women to control their own bodies, is not in line with where we are as a government and quite frankly, where we are as a society. If you're pro life, um, the article went on to say, then you will be, you know, you're ridiculed, insulted. If you're pro-choice, then you're praised. This was a student that was responding to Trudeau's comments. And um, Trudeau answered, he said, women have fought for generations for the right to control their own bodies, to be able to choose for themselves what to do with their bodies. And when those beliefs lead to actions aimed to restrict women's, a woman's right on what to do with her body, that's where we draw the line, he said. And so this was something, it's, it's something that's happening 
uh, globally. And so just so that you're aware of it, it's all, all around the world. Hey, I hope you're enjoying John and I's conversation on abortion at Calvary Chapel San Juan Capistrano. We just want to take a quick break and we just want to present you with an exciting opportunity. I trust that this show has been helpful for you and it's really important for us to get pro-life content and equipping in front of Christian young people, adults, lay people, Christian leaders who have often never done anything in their life to stop abortion. And we want to equip them and encourage them to do that with this show. And so we're looking at rolling out a lot more content, a lot more episodes, and a lot of different type of content besides just our episodic examination of what's happening in the country. And so if you want to be a part of that, consider becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com slash unaborted. And that's going to help us reach more people. That's going to help us create specific content for Christian leaders, for parents, for young people to have a place where they can be equipped and encouraged with like-minded individuals that they can interact with to be a voice for life. Greg Cunningham, one of the longtime pro-life leaders, once said that there are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable while saving them is very costly. And unfortunately, this is one of the struggles of the pro-life movement is an underfunded, understaffed movement against abor- abortion behemoth that makes millions of dollars off of the killing of children. Well, you can play a part in helping be a patron and member and founding member of this show to help us create more content, more episodes and reach specific people so we can create what will be the pro-life generation. So go on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of the show and we'll be right back um seth we hear all the time that the majority of americans support abortion and are pro-choice and those who are opposed to abortion are pro-life can you explain for us first of all what is the case for pro-life. So this is probably going to be the most uh, significant and helpful portion of the night for you guys. And I appreciate your time um, listening to us discuss such a difficult topic in our country today. And this is why we called it the case for life. Because what I do is I travel around the country speaking to Protestant Catholic high schools, colleges, churches, pregnancy care clinic banquets, public debates on university campuses and churches to equip students and the next generation and Christian leaders to be a thoughtful and gracious, persuasive defenders of unborn human life. Right? So essentially, we're creating ambassadors for the unborn. And so the case for life is very important because so many pro-life people like you guys, wonderful individuals who are so supportive of the Pregnancy Resource Center, who are so supportive of the pro-life message, sometimes struggle how to articulate your pro-life beliefs, especially to those who don't share your biblical worldview, who are not going to have any respect for a biblical argument. How do you engage with those people and defend God's truth by appealing to science and philosophy? So the case for life is both scientifically and philosophically sound. And our fundamental case is this, and I'm going to offer it in the form of a syllogism. Okay, premise A is this. It is always... What is a syllogism? <laughs> just go ahead. I mean, these guys know. I'm just for myself. It's for, my, for, for me. Yeah, so a syllogism is two premises, right? And if, if both premises are true, then the conclusion has to be true. Did you get that? Write that down. Say it one more time for them. A syllogism is, is, a, is a simple form of reasoning that lays out two premises. And if both premises are sound and they're true, then the conclusion naturally follows. I'm with you. Go for it. Got it. So the pro-life case is most simply made in the form of a syllogism, and it will help you understand and articulate the case for life. So syllogism, uh, the premise one is this. It is always wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And if you make that premise to someone who's pro-choice, who's going to disagree with that? Everyone's going to say, yes, it's intentionally wrong to kill innocent human beings. So then premise two is abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. So the conclusion would be abortion is wrong. Okay. So your family members, coworkers, friends who identify as pro-choice are not going to have any problem with premise one. They're going to say, yes, it's always wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. But what are they going to take an issue with? That abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. And and they're going to say, it's not a human being. It's not a human person. It doesn't have the same rights as you and I do. So it's not really killing. 
Okay, But that's the basic pro-life case, and that's how we lay it out. Because if you can defend both premises, then the conclusion has to be true. And so we make our case using science and philosophy. So they're going to say premise two is wrong. No, it's wrong that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. And they're going to say it's not a human being. Okay, excellent. Now, now we're talking. Is the unborn a human being? So the fundamental question in the abortion debate, friends, is what is the unborn? My friend Greg Kokel, a Christian apologist and author, says that if the unborn are not human, no justification for abortion is necessary. It's no different than clipping your fingernails. Have as many as you'd like. However, if the unborn are human, no justification for abortion is adequate. Mm -hmm. No justification for abortion suffices if that unborn baby is one of us, is a human being. So the fundamental question in the whole abortion debate, and that enables you to clear confusion in what people tell you is a morally complex debate, is what is the unborn? And the science of embryology answers this question for us. The facts are clear. We've known what the science has said for years. So this is the basic scientific case for life. It goes as follows. Scientifically... Pro-life advocates argue, according to the science of embryology, which teaches us that from the earliest stages of development, in other words, conception, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. Pro-abortion activists and philosophers and scientists admit this. It's distinct because it's actually a different entity. It's actually a different human being. Though it's connected to the mother, does that mean that the mother has 20 fingers and 20 toes because it's part of the mother? Excuse the example, but if the mother's pregnant with a male child, does the mother have a penis? But I thought it was part of the mother's body. So it's distinct. It's actually a different human being. It's living because it's directing its own internal growth. Those of you who are pregnant, who have been pregnant, those of you who are fathers, who's, who your wives have been pregnant, you know that pregnant women don't sit there going, time to grow, baby. Afternoon growth spurt. So the baby directs its own internal growth from within, and dead things don't grow. So the unborn child is distinct, living, and whole. When we say the unborn child is whole, we don't mean fully developed. We mean that everything that's necessary for that baby to realize his or her full growth and development as one of us is already present at the moment of conception. Just like I, as a 27-year-old, have everything I need to realize my development as a 30-year-old. Have I done that yet? Just like a toddler has everything that toddler needs to realize its development as a teenager. That's what we mean when we say the unborn child is whole. The unborn has everything it needs to realize its development. It just hasn't done it yet. So that's the scientific case for life according to the science of embryology. And it's scientifically sound. And that's the case you can make. According to the science of embryology, the unborn child is a distinct, living, and whole human being. And let me say this. And, and um, yeah, that's a good word, huh? That's a good stuff. Yeah. You believe that. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, here's what happens in just the first eight weeks of pregnancy. The child's brain and spinal cord begin to form. The tissues that will form the heart begin to beat. The heartbeat can be detected with ultrasound at about six weeks of pregnancy. Buds for limbs appear with, with paddle-like hands and feet. The eyes, ears, and nose begin to develop. Eyelids form but remain closed. Genitals begin to develop. By the end of the eighth week, all major organs in the body systems have begun to develop. And, and this is this is not the history of an organ or a bunch of tissue and blood. It's, it's the story of an early life of a person, of a human being. That's what's being developed. In fact, tonight, uh, before we end, I'm gonna, I'm, I am going to pull up that thing that you, uh, that video you got for me. Josh, just get that ready for us. But let's continue this, you know, moving on from just repeat those three things that are really important. The three that you just mentioned. Yeah. According to the science of embryology, from the moment of conception, the unborn child is a distinct living and whole human being. All right. Thank you so much. And then now we want to continue as it relates to, um, you know, the philosophical argument for this and, and how you have that, you have that really um, uh, wonderful, uh, what do you call it? Like an acronym. I got it. An acronym. And I think it's very helpful. It's a great way to remember. Just go into that and, and remind us, help us to understand. Listen carefully. Write this down. Okay, right. Take a note of this. This is really important. So be, be attentive. Go ahead. So thank you. 
So this, this is the, the second portion of the case for life, and this is what's going to enable you to summarize and make the whole pro-life presentation an argument. So science is clear. It's answered the question, what is the unborn? Okay. So now someone who's pro-choice, what are they going to say to you at this point, right? Real life, you're in a conversation. You've just laid out what the science of embryology teaches. It's a human being. Guess what? Only living things reproduce after their own kind. So dogs can only make dogs. Cats can only make cats. Human beings can only make human beings. So the science is settled. Now your pro-choice friend tells you, I mean, obviously it's a human being because its parents are human beings, but it's not a person and only persons have rights. What do you say? Now, the pro-lifer maintains that there's no difference between a human being and a human person. If you're a human being, you're a human person. These are philosophical terms. When someone says that you're not a person, it's usually relating to value statements. So they'll say the unborn is a human being biologically, but only persons have rights. And so we turn to the philosophical argument, which addresses the question of value. I may know that you are part of the race homo sapiens. I may know that you guys eat your biological humans, but why should I treat you with any value? Why should I treat you with dignity? Science can't tell us why we should treat each other well. It just tells us what kind of beings we are. Does that make sense? So the philosophical case for life answers that question. Now, from a biblical worldview, human beings have value because they're made in the image of God. And so the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden in scripture. And shedding, the shedding of innocent blood, the prohibitions against the shedding of innocent blood in scripture would apply equally to the unborn. But that biblical argument is not going to resonate with someone who says they're an atheist. So we can appeal to common grace that's found in the heart of men and women to make a philosophical case for life. And here is the philosophical pro-life argument. There is no meaningful difference there is no value-giving difference between the embryo that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. There's no value-giving difference between who you were in the womb and who you are outside the womb that makes it okay to kill you in the womb. Does that make sense? Now, clearly there are differences, right? I'm not saying there's not differences between a two-week embryo and a 16-year-old, but none of those differences are relevant to the moral question of abortion. But here's a helpful acronym to remember what four of the main differences are between who you were as embryos and who you are today as adults. The acronym is SLED. Um, a very difficult concept for Southern California people, but with the recent weather, maybe not so much. So the S in SLED stands for size. Yes, it's true. The unborn child is smaller than the, the newborn. Just like the newborn is smaller than the toddler and the toddler is smaller than the teenager. Just like I'm six foot three and larger than most of you. Do I have more value? No, definitely not. No, definitely not. <laughs> just want to go on record. Just, it's okay. No, it's all right. So size has nothing to do with our human rights, does it? Men are generally larger than women. Do we like where that reasoning leads? No. So size has nothing to do with your value That's right. and your right to life, your right to not be killed by someone else. So size is not relevant to the question of abortion. L, level of development. Yes, it's true. The unborn child is less developed than the newborn child. Just like the newborn child is less developed than toddler and the toddler is less developed than the teenager. Just like your teenagers are less developed than you, try telling them they have less value because they're less developed. So size and level of development are not relevant at all to our right to life and the question of abortion. But these are some of the differences that what? That pro-choice individuals point to to justify abortion. Oh, the baby's so small. Oh, come on, you're telling me that that three-week embryo is a person with rights? It's an argument from development. So size, level of development, environment. This is simply where one is located, right? Yes, it's true. The unborn child is located in a very unique environment. And in the first trimester... And early second trimester, that unborn child can't survive apart from the mother. It's in a very unique environment, his or her mother's womb. By the way, the environment that that baby is supposed to be located, the natural environment for where that baby is supposed to be. And guess what? It's where we all once were. But where one is has no bearing on who one is. John and I are seated, seated in two different chairs. We are in two different locations. In fact, everyone in this room is in a different location. When you leave here, 
stoked to defend unborn life, and you leave and walk outside, you will have changed locations. Can I kill you outside but not in here? Where one is has no bearing on who one is. So why does a six-inch journey down the birth canal in the minds of Americans change the unborn child from something that we can kill through legalized abortion to something that we're required to protect by law? Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. Degree of dependency. This just means how, how dependent you are on someone or something else for your life. Yes, it's true. The unborn child is very dependent on the mother. Thanks to medical advancements, we're able to save preemies, premature, prematurely born babies, earlier and earlier, which is a very interesting way to upset the pro-choice argument because many of them argue that once the baby can survive outside the womb, then abortion's wrong. But medicine keeps enabling us to save preemies earlier and earlier. So do human rights differ based off of medical advancements? So if your value is tied up to your dependency on someone or something else, then we'd be forced to admit that all of those dependent on heart pacemakers, kidney machines, life support, insulin, are all non-humans and can be killed as such because they're dependent on something without which they cannot continue to live. So size, level of development, environment, and dependency, the four differences between who you once were in the womb and who you are today, and none of them are relevant to your right to life and your right to not be killed. Any argument for abortion will point out a difference between the baby in the womb and you and I, and then argue that that difference is a morally acceptable difference to take the life of the unborn child. But every argument for abortion can equally be applied to a born person who also lacks the difference or the function that the pro-choice person says humans need to have value. So the philosophical case for life is this, and I'll summarize everything I just said in 20 or 30 seconds. Philosophically, pro-life advocates argue that there's no value-giving difference between the embryo you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify taking your life at that earlier stage. Differences in size, level of development, environment, and dependency are not good reasons for saying that you had no right to life then in the womb, oh, but you do now that you've been born. That makes sense, that's good stuff, huh? Good job, Seth. Very good. I know when we dialogued about this, really opened my eyes to that. You know, if somebody's in a coma, um, is it okay to go in and stab them? Of course not. They're dependent on something to keep them going, but you, would, you, you value that life. You, you know, we, we, we seek to preserve life. And um, in either, either place, like you said, it's such a great way to understand it. You know, Seth, when you think about this ongoing tragedy of abortion, and this, I'll ask this question, what do you feel that the church's responsibility is and what can, what can we do? So this is so important to what I do and what our organization does as a pro-life organization focused on equipping and training. We view what we do as integral to the Great Commission itself. And you as a believer in Jesus, when you speak up for unborn life and when you defend unborn life and when you get involved with the local pregnancy resource center and when you get involved with pro-life groups, you are actually fulfilling part of the Great Commission. And let me explain how this is and why it's so important for us as Christians to understand this. Um, because a lot of churches in America today don't view abortion as having anything to do with ministry or having anything to do with evangelism and the Great Commission. So, so we want to talk just briefly about the responsibility of the church and as individual believers to protect life. So what is the church's responsibility? I think we'd all say it's the Great Commission. If we were to just give the most simplistic true answer, right? Jesus, before his ascension, says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So the Great Commission is twofold. It's create disciples and then teach them, teach those disciples to obey everything Jesus has commanded, okay? Well, since Jesus is God, one could argue that everything Jesus has commanded is the entirety of Scripture, well, that's a hefty task. Teach disciples to obey everything that's in here. And that is what we're called to. But how can we think about it more simply? Well, Jesus did it for us. He already summarized all of the law and the prophets. What did he say? They hang on to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself is the unborn our neighbor. 
That is how pro-life mission is integral to the Great Commission itself. We are called to love our neighbors. And if we're to teach people to obey everything Jesus has commanded, part of what scripture commands is what? Don't shed innocent blood. What is abortion? The shedding of innocent blood. So we are called to love our unborn neighbors. How? I think the parable of the Good Samaritan is probably one of the best and most beautiful examples of loving your neighbor. And guess what? Jesus tells that parable in response to the question, and what must I do to be saved? And what must I do to be saved? And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's a big question to ask. And then the lawyer trying to test Jesus said, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know it. A man is traveling on the road. He's beaten. He's robbed. He's mugged. He's left for dead. As he's sitting on the side of the road, bleeding out, two religious men who were probably opposed to street mugging, who were probably personally pro-life, personally anti-street mugging, they walked by on the other side of the road. Luke's gospel told us, tells us that when they turned and saw him, they walked by on the other side of the road. So the, the Levite and the priest might have felt compassion. How many Christians today feel compassion for the babies in the womb? They feel compassion for the reality of abortion and do nothing and walk by on the other side of the road. It was the Good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, that Luke's gospel tells us when he turned and saw him, he had compassion. His faith evidenced itself in works, and he made radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money, his time, his energy, and his money to love his neighbor lavishly. The parable of the Good Samaritan tells us that he put the man on his own donkey. There's energy. He had to walk. Time, because he was going somewhere else. He had to stop. He had to be inconvenienced to care for the bleeding victim. Mm -hmm. And his money, because it says that he nursed the man back to health. He poured his own oil and wine on the man. He took him to an inn, and then he said, I have to go now. When I come back, I'm going to pay the innkeeper any other costs that accumulated in caring for this man while I was gone. Radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love his neighbor. So at the very least, at the very least, Christians today who stand for the value of life in the womb ought to be making sacrifices of their time, their energy, and their money to love our unborn neighbors lavishly. And the Good Samaritan is ultimately just a bigger picture of who Christ is, who loved us in a way that we couldn't imagine. Mm. So at the minimal, that's what our role is as the church in response to this issue. And I do this full time. The content you heard me share today on The Case for Life is what I do full-time, and my goal is to reach 20,000 students in 2019 with this type of equipping and training so that they can be a voice for the unborn. So if you want to get involved with that or learn more about that or get on my team, I'll be hanging around afterwards to share more. Mm, thank you so much. I appreciate that. I do believe also that there is, and Seth and I have talked about this before and are in agreement on this point, certainly that um, those who scream and yell and are belligerent toward uh, those in, in anger and rage seem to do more damage than good. Um, Seth, do you believe there, there is a balance, and I think you presented it well, in the approach in defending the unborn, that there is to be grace and truth? Because we've talked about it before. You can win an argument, and, and you could even help to convince a woman to keep her baby, which is the, is the right choice. And essentially, we're helping you make the right choice. And, and yet, if she dies without Christ and goes to hell, there's more to this, you understand. We want to bring Jesus into this. We want people to know um, how they can be saved. I really appreciate that about our local Pregnancy Resource Center because that's what they do. They share the gospel and help these women to make the right choice, which is in keeping their baby. But even the greater choice is, is accepting Christ because once you, when you accept Christ, that changes everything. That changes your mentality, your heart, everything from the inside out. And you will uh, want to keep that child. So I think it's important that we, we help with that balance of grace and truth. We, we need to speak truth. But we also need to have grace when we share with people who are uh, um, on the other side of that. Absolutely. And I think, once again, Jesus is the best example of this, right? He is the greater good Samaritan. And 
I'll tell you guys another story you know. A woman is caught in adultery. He's dragged before Jesus by the religious leaders, and they test him, right, with what to do. And some people misunderstand this story as Jesus only showing grace, but he shows both. He shows grace and truth. And so, right, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. They all leave. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? She said, I have none. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And there is forgiveness and healing in Jesus for any type of sin, except like we were talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But, and, but now go stop doing that. Go and sin no more. And I think that's probably the best example of how we can do both. I think it'd be good. We're just going to, um, I want to show this. This is like a two minute or so clip. This will blow your mind. It set, set us up with this clip and, and exactly, um, and what this is. And, uh, and, and then we're going to show it and then you and I'll come back up and we'll close it out. But what, what are we going to show right now that you sent it to me? This is embryoscopy footage. So this is not ultrasonography. This is a whole nother type of footage. And so this is an actual camera that they can insert up the birth canal. And because the amniotic sac is clear, you can see the baby. And so this is first trimester footage. Oh yeah, just a blob of tissue. So this shows the baby yawn, blink, react to light, and you can literally see the actual heart beating. So this proves the humanity of the unborn and it gives you a God's eye view of the development of every life that he created in his image. Yeah, check this out. A touch to the mouth area causes the embryo to reflexively withdraw its head. The external ear is beginning to take shape. By six weeks, blood cell formation is underway in the liver, where lymphocytes are now present. This type of white blood cell is a key part of the developing immune system. The diaphragm, the primary muscle used in breathing, is largely formed by six weeks. portion of the intestine now protrudes temporarily into the umbilical cord. This normal process, called physiologic herniation, makes room for other developing organs in the abdomen. At six weeks, the hand plates develop a subtle flattening. Brain waves have been recorded as early as six weeks and two days. Nipples appear along the sides of the trunk shortly before reaching their final location on the front of the chest. By six and a half weeks, the elbows are distinct. The fingers are beginning to separate and hand movement can be seen. Bone formation, called ossification, begins within the clavicle or collarbone and the bones of the upper and lower jaw. I want to mention as we, as we wrap up, tonight, um, you know, there may be some either here this evening or maybe even watching online as we're live um, in different ways, whether it's off the website or Facebook Live if you're watching tonight. And um, maybe you went through this. Maybe, maybe this has happened to you. Maybe this was something that you did in your life or as a man, you were with a woman and this happened. I, I want you to know something tonight. I want you to know that there is grace and there is forgiveness and there's healing in Jesus and that, that you can be made whole and that God can forgive and God can heal and God can work, that he loves you. And, and I want to, I just want you to know that. And maybe, maybe that's something you've never talked about in your whole life. You just buried that. You just, you, you didn't think about it and, and maybe you, you didn't want to talk about it. But I want, I want you to know on the authority of scripture that God forgives 
and he heals and he can make you whole. And Seth, as we close out tonight, you can share that. We were, you and I were discussing this before, just if you want to share that one illustration that you have, and just that compassionate illustration about what God did with one of the greatest kings of all, and then I'll close us out. Yeah, yeah thank you, John. Thank you for your time, guys. So we all know someone uh, who has obtained an abortion, whether you know it or not. They may not have told you. Uh, this affects all of us in a very significant way just because so many babies have been killed through abortion. Um, and so this is, this is part of so many people's story. And so the story of King David is probably one of the most powerful stories I could share with you if you're a man or a woman who obtained an abortion or stood by while your girlfriend obtained an abortion or pressured her to obtain an abortion. Before God called David a man after his own heart, you know, he slept with Bathsheba. He committed infidelity, adultery. And in order to cover up and hide his sexual sin, he arranged the death of an innocent victim, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Abortion is the arranging of the death of an innocent human being who has done nothing. Now, you may not have obtained an abortion to cover up infidelity or sexual sin, but either way, it ended in the death of an innocent human being. And when Nathan confronted David, David repented and God renewed him and God forgave him. And then God went on to call him a man after his own heart. He became such a huge figure in scripture that Christ was called a son of David. And David said regarding the baby that died from his infidelity with Bathsheba, he said, he, his baby, will not return to me, but I will go to him. So if you have arranged the death of your baby through abortion and you accept the forgiveness and blood of Jesus, which he purchased on the cross for you, then you will see your baby or babies in heaven again one day. And they are with Jesus, seated with him in glory. So Jesus is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as he is any other sin. That's right. Such a good reminder for us and uh, how gracious and how loving and forgiving our Lord is. You know, I, uh, I know there's a lot of questions that could be asked and, um, and I want to encourage you if you want to talk to Seth afterwards, he'll be out there and, um, cause there, there are questions that come up and he'd be happy to answer those for you. I also want to mention to you tonight, uh, Jane wall from the, the pregnancy resource center is here tonight. Jane, where are you? Raise your hands. There she is right there. And, um, and you know, Jane is also going to be at the women's retreat. She's going to be sharing her powerful testimony of what God has done in her life. And it is, uh, yeah, ladies, I would encourage you to come out for that. You're going to be blessed. But if maybe maybe you have some friends or you have questions or they offer all kinds of counseling and, and have um, just so many wonderful people that serve in that ministry. And so Jane's here tonight. You can talk to her if you'd like to um, have any questions. And I'm sure she'd be happy to answer and to help in any way. And Seth, and of course, uh, we as pastors will be here. Guys, this is a... This is a very serious issue. I mean, this is the world that we live in. Violence is increasing. We see these things happening. This is, this is the signs of the times. I mean, Jesus, we don't, again, we don't know the day or the hour, but we see these things increasing in such a way. And it reminds us Jesus is coming soon. And so I, I hope tonight that you have a better understanding of why we seek. This isn't political. We're not trying, this isn't a political issue. This is a moral, this is a theological, this is a biblical issue as it relates to life. And for us as Christians, I mean, we need to be praying. We need to, as, as we were exhorted tonight, to exercise our energy, our time, our resources, however the Lord leads us to, to really get involved. But we need to, I, I believe that we need to be praying um, and adding it to our prayer time daily to pray for this. This is a serious thing. And it's, it's only um, increasing. So I'm gonna close this out in prayer tonight and... And I think, yeah, that's what we're going to do. So we'll pray. Father, I just thank you so much tonight, Lord, we, for just the opportunity to talk about these things that, Lord, can be difficult to talk about. But, Lord, you, you want us to be like the sons of Issachar that knew the times in which they lived. Lord, we don't want to be ignorant, Lord, of, of where we're living or be desensitized 
by all that we're fed on a regular basis, Lord, and what our kids are being fed, and, and Lord, from the media and, and the news and all that's around us, seeking to, sh- seeking to shape our mentality. Lord, we want your word to shape our mentality. We want your spirit to help us to think clearly, Lord, to have our minds renewed, to have a passion to protect, to pray for, and to rescue, Lord, unborn children. So, Father, Lord, you know what's going on in our nation. We deserve judgment. We ask for mercy. We ask for, Lord, a work of your spirit to sweep through this nation. Lord, we pray for our brother tonight, Lord, for Seth and his ministry. We ask that you continue to open up new doors for him, God. Just make a way where there may, maybe there hasn't been in the past, Lord. Just make the way. Help him to seek you first. And Lord, open those doors in all these different areas so that he can continue to, to reach those with this important message, Lord. So we thank you. Bless, Lord, tonight. And, uh, and Lord, for those also, I just want to pray for those that may be hurting. Maybe some of this has brought up some things. Lord, I pray they'd they know your love and your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness, Father. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Folks, um, why don't we all stand together? Thanks so much, bro. Let's give our, our brother a hand tonight, Seth. Great job. So thankful. Thanks so much for listening to John and I's entire conversation at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano on abortion, the role of the church, the grace and forgiveness available in Jesus to those who have been wounded by abortion and how you can be a persuasive voice for the unborn. Go ahead and give this episode a re-listen if you need to and consider sharing it with a friend, someone in your life who's pro-life, but maybe need some encouragement as well as those in your life who disagree with you. Ask them to test their ideas and listen to a different voice and a different position. Furthermore, if you want to learn more about me and my ministry and speaking, head on over to my website at sethgruber.com. That's S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com and sign up for my newsletter and get pro-life videos and training. Check out my speaking schedule when our world returns to normal and I'm back on the road and uh, consider supporting our ministry supporting this show. Lastly, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. It really helps us reach more people and stick around. We'll be back next week with a whole lot more.